0: The following program contains scenes and language of
1: a frank and explicit nature. Discretion is advised.
2: Here we are, everyone, episode 95, 95, episode 95 of Rareform Radio is here. I am Dan Cleary, your trusted Host and leader? I'm a leader, guys. I'm not a follower. I'm no sheep. You know, I'm not getting that vaccine. I'm not going to wear no mask. I'm not a goddamn sheep. I'm kidding. I did all those things. I'm a total sheep. Boy, we got a show today. I'll tell you what. Um, First, I want to welcome our new patrons. uh, Kevin Smith, dude, thank you very much. Joining all the way from Canada. Appreciate the support. Um cousin Sam. Sam Paul, Heidi's cousin. Thank you, buddy. I appreciate it. Uh, Welcome to uh, the real world. You know, you left, um, what the hell was your thing? The Church of Science, what is it? Goddamn, oh my God. Jehovah's Witnesses. Congratulations on your new life. And Chad Wise, thank you very much for upgrading from the $10 tier to the $20 tier. That means you get all the video so you are fucking riding high, dude. Absolutely stoked. Anybody else wants to become patrons? You know what to do at this point. Patreon.com slash rareformradio. Join the party. Get extra shit. All, you know, early access. Blah, 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 blah. It's fun. I love it over there. Uh, this weekend, I'm recording this on Mother's Day. Uh, and yesterday, a 10-story... 23-ton piece of Chinese rocket uh, entered Earth's atmosphere and plummeted to the Earth. And there was a few days when they did not know where it was going to hit and what it was going to do. So the world could have ended for a lot of people, but it didn't. It landed in the Indian Ocean. And how crazy is that? For real, though. Like, what, what kind of damage would have been done if that hit in Chicago? Or if we were lucky enough, Florida? Uh, just fucking nuts. It could all be over in an instant. Uh, rest in peace, Tawny Katane. You know, a lot of people remember her from uh, the White Snake video or whatever the fuck. I remember her as Tom Hanks' love interest in the classic tragically overlooked by the oscars film Bachelor Party from 1980 whatever really fucking good if you guys haven't seen it this is obviously tom hanks pre philadelphia pre castaway pre da vinci code and pre being america's awesome grandfather or whatever he is really funny movie rest in peace tani and um Lastly, before I tell you about the show today, interviewed my mom last week uh, for Mother's Day, and your guy's response has been really wonderful. She was super nervous and is since mortified at some of the things that she said and admitted to, um, but I'm going to show her all the comments and messages that you guys have sent uh, because it, it's going to make her feel better. And it made me feel really good. And I'm happy that you guys connected in whatever way you did. Uh, it was awesome. It was really awesome for me. Except for the parts when she was talking about having multiple orgasms with different dudes.
1: That part sucked.
2: Um, but, you know, it made it made me laugh. Maybe more out of discomfort. Uh, hopefully it made you guys laugh. I know it made uh, some members of my family who listen um, nauseous. and made them want to throw up. Uh, understandable uh, dislike. But mom, I love you. Thank you for that. Hopefully, we'll do we'll do that again or some shit. Maybe not that again. I don't want to. A lot of that I don't want to hear again. But it also bred more questions. Um, today on the show, boy. I just got done interviewing somebody who uh, is just fascinating and uh, guilty of, you know, a, a horrible crime and possibly many others. Um, today I interview convicted killer and self-proclaimed cannibal and now uh, dark artist Nico Klo who some people know as the Vampire of Paris. And we talked for about two hours. So, you know, make some food, cuddle up on the couch, uh, prepare your favorite uh, body part of a human being, and enjoy the interview. Uh, There's so many more questions I could have asked, and hopefully I will some other time. But I do appreciate Nico being so incredibly honest and open about his experiences, and where he's at nowadays, and his mindset and the psychology of the whole thing. I was nervous to interview him, not necessarily to speak to him, but because of of you know my close relationship to Dave Navarro, who everyone here knows, who is the uh, one of the victims, and the, what fallout is when someone is, is murdered. So, uh, I'm very sensitive to the idea of glorifying the things that Nico, uh, did, but I, I truly am fascinated by the childhood aspect and, uh, just the, the mindset of the whole thing, because weirdly, and the part that freaks me out is that we have similar interests, him and I, and, Parts of our childhoods are similar as far as being, you know, alone a lot and disappearing into like a a fair fantasy world in your head in your bedroom. And I did that stuff. The only difference was I didn't, mine didn't fester into this uh, lack of empathy, which he describes in detail. But it was a really interesting time. Hopefully, you guys enjoy it. I'm sure you will. Uh, parts of it are surely uncomfortable, um, but if you listen to this show, you know what you're getting into, and you know a lot of the questions that I'm going to ask already. So uh, hopefully I touch on the things that you want me to, and if not, we'll do it again. But without further ado, here is my interview with Nico Klo. We are joined today with my guest, uh, all the way from Paris, France. We've been trying to get this on the books for a few weeks, but uh, welcome. Nico Klo. Thank you very much for uh, joining the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you for inviting me,
2: of course. Um, I found you through a mutual friend and uh, I've, I've, I've heard your name before, of course, because I have, I have interest in things that you've been a part of in some ways and I found your story. Interesting uh, on on many accounts, but I want to give people a little bit of a background. Um, You grew up, you kind of grew up all over the place in Europe, right?
0: Yes. uh, When I was a a kid, I moved uh, in several European countries. Uh, Actually, I was born in Africa, in Cameroon, because my father used to work for uh, a, a bank so he was working IT mm-hmm. uh, in a bank. So it was a uh, a time in the 70s where they had to install new networks, and uh, uh, it was not even uh, uh, the internet yet. So uh, they had to install wow. a lot of different networks around the world, and uh, my job, uh, my my father had to. Uh, moved to different countries and uh, to different branches of the bank around the world uh, but he was mostly uh, moving to african and uh, asian countries okay so i was born in cameroon in africa and then a little back a little uh, later i would be, my parents moved to back to paris uh, and uh, then we moved to the UK, then back to Paris and then to Portugal, several countries, yes.
2: Okay, and uh, were you an only child?
0: Yes, I was uh, an an only child, yes.
2: And what was it like for you? Did you have a tough time moving around that much or did you like uh, making new friends and like seeing new places?
0: Maybe, maybe the fact of moving all the time uh, made it uh, much harder to have interactions with uh, other kids okay. uh, and to establish trust and friendships. Uh, so yes, it was definitely uh, harder as a kid to uh, have basic interactions with uh, other kids my age. So I was very introvert mm-hmm. when I was a kid. And I built my own little fantasy world in which I lived. Uh, I was pretty happy with being that way. I didn't uh, ask myself any questions. Mm -hmm. And uh, I had a tendency to be very uh, aware of uh, other people and uh, being uh, judged by them uh, for being a loner. So, yeah, basically, I would stay to myself and not,
2: you know, build regular friendships like uh, other kids do. You mentioned um, building a fantasy world in your head. Was that, like, when you would escape to the fantasy world, would it be in music? Would you watch movies? Would you do art? Like, what what was your fantasy world that you made for yourself?
0: From a very, very early age, I was uh, drawn to horror and um, true crime. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was very intrigued by uh, true crime books and um, um, figures like Jack the Ripper and uh, later on Ted Bundy and all those big true crime uh, uh, figures Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that I grew up with in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yes. It was definitely something that I, I was very very uh, intrigued by. Uh, I was also very into horror movies. Uh, later on, I started to listen to metal, heavy metal, uh, death metal. Mm-hmm. So yes, it was part of my uh, uh, um, of the culture where I, I was uh, um, that I was developing. Uh, it was, of, of course, a time when you did not have access to the Internet. So if you were into uh, some, some something very, very uh, uh, unpopular and uh, niche, you had to read. Yeah, had right. to read the fanzines and magazines. And you, uh, later on, I would uh, um, trade videotapes when I was into horror movies. And I would trade audio tapes when I was into uh, metal. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- th- that was a culture uh, that, that I, I developed myself. And uh, uh, back in the days in France, in the, the late uh, 80s, you didn't have access to, to any of this. So, uh, so yeah, I would uh, spend my time uh, uh, getting um, um, pen pals. Getting pearl Pals from from overseas and uh, around Europe,
2: oh,
1: wow. people
0: who had, who could send me tapes, yeah, yeah, sure. So it was m- mostly whole uh, whole movie tapes and mm-hmm. stuff that wasn't available uh, in uh, in uh, French uh, French uh, video stores. Interesting. So, yes. Just, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I can relate. I was I, watching I can... a lot
2: of. Uh... Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, please. Uh, um.
0: I was starting to really getting into uh, uh, stuff like Faces of Death and um, all this mondo subculture, mm-hmm. uh, you know. Cannibal uh, Holocaust. And, yeah. Exactly, short documentaries and stuff like that. So it was definitely not mainstream stuff and hence uh, the need to seek out uh, other sources of
2: uh, entertainment. Yeah, It's, it's interesting because um, <clears throat> you mentioned being uh, kind of an introvert and the music and the horror movies and you mentioned Faces of Death and now it feels like I'm yeah. talking to myself in some ways because I grew up, you know, I, I, I made friends pretty easily, but my household was not, you know, the happiest household. So I spent the majority of my childhood and high school years in my room um, watching horror movies and listening to music. And I remember my uh, my mom and stepdad, they they rented Faces of Death um, one night and they watched it. They had like a viewing party in the living room and us kids were not supposed to see it, but I kind of snuck in yeah. and watched some of it. And that was the first time I had seen, I, I know a lot of it's fake, but the first time I'd seen actual yeah. uh, gore and, and really seen kind of the the dark side of humanity. And I was fascinated. I was completely riveted um yeah i i I don't think we we are
0: i think we are an entire uh generation who have grown on uh watching those those things Mm -hmm. and uh it's it's really sets up as a platform from from the current uh, generation uh for uh, which everything is so easy uh Mm -hmm. you're just clicking on a few links and you have access to all those stuff that was you know really hard for us to
2: to have access to
0: so is it good is it bad i don't know but uh yeah mm-hmm.
2: I, uh, it's it's a question that i that i have this conversation all the time is is it good to see those kind of things and i feel like yeah. it's different person to person you know in some cases it might do some damage and in some cases it might just be you know a morbid curiosity you know
0: exactly it's morbid curiosity. And I don't think knowing so many people who grew up watching those things and who are totally functional individuals now, that, uh, you know, it, it wasn't a bad thing. And mm-hmm. It's a way of pushing the limits, pushing your own limits. What, sure. what, what, it's how you build your own morals as a kid. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is this wrong? What, am I watching something that is morally wrong? Uh, how do I feel about this? All those questions that you would ask yourself when you were a kid, that define you as an adult. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting because nowadays with this uh, freedom of watching everything you want, it's a totally different, uh, uh, I don't know, it's a totally different situations mm-hmm. situation. And uh, yeah, yeah. I'm really curious about what would be the impact on, uh, Today's uh, uh, internet culture on on kids nowadays and how they will grow grow up as adults. Uh, true, true. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and and some people, unfortunately, they could make the argument with someone like yourself that that kind of exposure at a young age could lead to something very negative. You know what I mean? Because
0: see, that was the the main the main uh, debate. During my trial. Mm -hmm. That was the main debate during my trial. There were, uh, it was a year when there were four or five movies shown at the Cannes Film Festival. You know, there's this huge film festival in France, the Cannes Film Festival. And there were uh, a journey with, um, a movie with Johnny Depp called The Brave, where he's uh, uh, playing a a, a guy who, uh, uh stars in a snuff movie mm-hmm. uh there was another movie uh, called uh, funny games uh yep uh there were really violent movies and so my lawyer said okay see the movies that we have nowadays at the Cannes Festival uh they glorify violence they you know and they can seriously mess up with a, a, a very influential kid who is already prone to violence or prone to uh Uh, dark fantasies. So, yeah, that that was the main thing, one of the main things on my trial. Uh, I think it's more complex than that. I think that the cocktail, because it's all about the cocktail, it's Mm -hmm. way more complex than that. And I think that, you know, in my case, it was indulgence, indulging in in, uh, horror and uh, extreme violence and all those videotapes that I would watch extreme SNM and uh, all those things I, I had access to all those things but uh, on the contrary I think that uh uh abstinence from all those things when you are prone to having those dark fantasies they, they lead to uh frustration
1: mm, and frustration
0: sure. can lead to crime too at sure. Ted Bundy was a uh, he was constantly fantasizing of a bondage, uh, bondage material, etc., and he only had uh, access to uh, mainstream pornography. Mm-hmm. So he had to develop his own fantasies and uh, read true crime uh, material and true crime newspapers and articles on, on uh, serial killers before him, before building his own, you know, fantasies in his head. So it's either that, either. Indulging in in those kind of things or frustration. So, what is the best? I don't know. Yeah, so it's complex.
2: Very, very complex. Kind of making the argument where, had someone like Ted Bundy had an outlet to get these materials easier, it possibly would not have led to him being a serial killer. Possibly.
0: Nobody can answer that question. Of course, I I think that nobody can answer that question. It's just a, a small part of who he was and I think that the material uh, whether he had access to it or not it would have not defined him as an individual mm-hmm. and that's what's interesting the, the cocktail that leads to that is way more interesting than the actual little, little elements of the cocktail mm. but you have to understand those elements and those little pieces and those little pieces of the puzzle to get a bigger picture
2: and that's kind of what i want to know with you because i i've read that as you know your your childhood ramped up to adulthood you kind of became and tell me if i'm wrong you became sort of angrier and more detached from society in some ways and uh what kind of changed your view of people and what got what, what got you going to the point of eventually taking another man's life. I'm I'm curious if you could, if looking back, if you can see where that violent streak started, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah. So as I I told you before, uh, as a kid, uh, before I was 10 years old, I was very, very, uh, uh, um, I was a lonely child. I was a very uh, introvert. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I would always view others as potential threats. And uh, when I I, uh, went to uh, junior high, um, it became more and more difficult for me to adapt to those kind of environments. Where I was, uh, you know, I had to go to school and I had to see other kids and I just couldn't understand how they would function as human beings. Because I didn't function the same way, I, right. I didn't have the same, I didn't have the same springs in me, the same, uh, the, the the same uh, the same wheels spinning inside of me, uh, and I just uh, I just couldn't understand any of it. Mm. And the social interactions, the way uh, you had to behave, the way you have, you know, all those things. they were, I, I felt like an alien coming. Uh, going to Earth on uh, for the first time, see what I mean? Of course. Um, and uh, of course, I'm not the only kid who ever felt that way uh, when going to uh, junior high or high school. But uh, for me, it was very, very difficult in the, the in, in in knowing that uh, it was each time it was a different country. Mm. So I had to adapt to other kids, different cultures and uh so yeah it definitely was harder for me mm-hmm. and also i think that i began to um start having uh very dark fantasies and going on very dark places already uh, at age 10 or age 9 mm. uh, I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a difficult childhood. You know, my parents were, were very good to me. And uh, they just, you know, they just saw me as a very, very lonely child. Very, uh, you know, a, a very special kid who was staying alone all the time. But, you know, they, I guess that they, they had other problems too. So uh, for them, it was not a major concern. Mm-hmm. But. Uh, um, I quickly, very quickly developed uh, murder fantasies concerning my, the, other, the other kids at school. Oh, wow. Uh, very vivid and graphic uh, murder fantasies. From age 12 to, yeah, 12, 13, uh, I, I would fantasize over stabbing them. Mm. And uh, at first, the, the fantasies, they were very, very primitive uh because i didn't have any grasp of anatomy so for me killing somebody was very easy you just had to stab him in the neck or you know it was easy right but uh as uh the more i I, I read about uh serial killers and the more i understood that uh killing wasn't that easy so um, i began to i began to uh read anatomy books and I I really began to be interested in human anatomy. Not and that's interesting, not uh, uh, having in mind uh, of becoming a doctor or nurse or whatever, but you know more about learning how this machine worked and how to sabotage it easily. Wow. If you you understand what I mean. Of course, I
2: I do. I do. And um, You mentioned the the fantasies of of hurting um, students at school. When you thought about that, did you think about um, just hurting as many as possible or particular kids, like particular kids that were either bullies to you or girls that wouldn't talk to you, or was it just kind of a free for all?
0: First it was, yeah, it was targeted against all the, the kids who were talking behind my back and telling things and, you know, of course, it was a reaction to bullying and uh, being socially uh, uh, inadequate. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then it got into bigger and bigger proportions because for, for me, they, they were all guilty. Guilty of being uh, human. Oh, wow. Because the more I grew up and the more I, f- I didn't feel human at all. I uh, that's totally... that was my
2: next question. Is it sounds like that you didn't yeah. see yourself as a human being. Oh, no, no totally
0: not, I couldn't understand what humanity was about, what compassion was about, what uh, even the the most simple uh, human emotions, I I just didn't get them, I just didn't understand what they were about and uh, so yeah uh, it became more and more uh, fantasies over uh, shooting stabbing uh, randomly randomly, Mm. just randomly, but yes at first it became you know, it was very targeted, and then, you know, the more the more I, I uh, um, um, got, uh, uh, the the more I, I grew older, and the uh, the more it became less. You know, uh, the anger became something more uncontrollable. Mm. Yeah, it began to have bigger and bigger proportions.
2: Okay. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you're you talking about anger and you said that you had a tough time um, feeling emotions. You said that your parents were very loving. Did you, did you feel the love or did you just believe them that they loved you? And also, did you feel what you consider love towards uh, your parents or other family?
0: Not at all. Not at all because they didn't express anything and I didn't express anything. So it was, for the most part, it was a, like, indifference. Mm -hmm. Uh, No, no, no real emotions uh, on both sides. Interesting. They probably, they probably weren't raised to show emotions. And this is how it, you know, uh, impacted me as a, as a kid. Uh, So yes, there was
2: no, nothing. Yeah. Wow. Is, is that something that later in life, have you, have those emotions, are you able to show those kind of emotions nowadays or is it still something that's hard for you?
0: Oh, no, no. I grew, I grew as a human and I grew as, a, you know, emotionally speaking. I, 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 uh, I'm a self taught man, uh, emotionally speaking. Yeah. I, 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 I you know, I started from nothing and I, I'm going somewhere and, I, and I've been through a lot. So yes. uh, I, I'm yes. getting much, much better, much better, better at this. But yes, uh, uh, it was, let's say, you know, I, I strongly believe that uh, what we call conscious uh, is something that you can be born without, like you are born without limbs or without, you know, Uh, Without a specific organ. And I think that conscience and uh, um, uh, the ability to feel uh, for others uh, is something that you, yeah, yeah, empathy. I think that it's something that you can be born without. And uh, then you have to work uh, and you have to go through several uh, experiences to actually learn empathy when you are devoid of it.
2: Okay. I, I want to go through some of those experiences. Um, and I want to ask you, you, you got a job uh, in a morgue and I want to know how that came about and how old were you when you, started, when you got the job in the, uh, in the morgue?
0: From very, very early on when I was about yeah, 10, 12, uh, I, I've always wanted to work as a, as a deaf, uh, the deaf industry, the funeral industry. Uh, Because when I was 10, my grandfather died and I went to the wake. uh, And I was fascinated by the the atmosphere in the funeral home. And I I, uh, just swore to myself to work there because, first of all, I knew that uh, I would have no interactions with a living individual. But later on, when I worked there, I actually learned that uh, it wasn't really that way that uh, you actually had to deal with humans well, living, living people in the, the funeral industry and uh, that it wasn't that easy but yeah, when I was a kid I thought that uh, it would be easier for me instead of working in an office or of wo- working uh, uh, you know, uh, with other people just work with dead people in my mind it was what I, I was uh, meant to do uh, it was like a call Uh, Because I've always viewed, you know, I've always viewed uh, death and physical death as an entity. And that might sound uh, uh, very primitive, but, uh, you know, the the only religion in the world that appears to me is the Santa Muerte religion uh, in Mexico. Uh, Because for me, uh, if there is a God, it's death,
1: you know? Mm-hmm.
0: The only for me, the only actual entity that's real because I've experienced it in many ways, in many different forms, and uh, later on in life, I've worked for about uh, uh, 15 years in morgues uh, after my release from prison. So um, I made the uh, I made a. Uh, an estimation when i have worked with more than 15,000 dead people in my life. So, you know, I have a, I have a foot on the other side. Right. And, sure. uh, yeah, I know, I know some, I know some things about
2: that. I bet. I bet. I'm, well, yeah. um, so <laughs> and, uh, I'm fast. Yeah. Yeah when, I, and... yeah.
0: when I was, yeah, when I was a uh, 20, um, I sent, resumes to different hospitals. Uh, There wasn't a a specific school for that. You had to first work as a stretcher bearer or, you know, an orderly in a a hospital, and then they would hire you in the morgue if uh, they needed staff. But I specifically applied for for a morgue job. Uh, And then I I got a few replies, and I uh, worked in a a couple of morgues in Paris uh, for... uh, about a year, uh, and uh, the last job I got, after 10 months, I got fired. And I didn't, no, I, w- I wasn't fired, actually. Just me, didn't want to work there anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to work in another hospital, uh, so I quit the job. And uh, two months after that, I was uh,
2: arrested for murder. Two months after, okay. Do, do yeah. you... So you, you worked in the morgue for 10 months is what you said, right? Uh,
0: all in all in 12, for 12 months Okay, uh, during that okay. year for 12 months, but in that specific morgue, 10 months. Yeah. So when you were working there,
2: did, when you were handling bodies or the first time you saw a, a body come in, um, was it all work for you or did you have some kind of exhilaration to be around death was there like a did you get a rush was there any kind of like sexual element to it or was it just work at the beginning?
0: It had always been a fascination for me I've always been fascinated by death and dead bodies and uh, physical death and I used to hang out in graveyards before that I spent at least four or five years hanging out in in graveyards before actually working in a morgue and by hanging out in the graveyard I mean spending at least Two or three afternoons a week in the graveyard by yourself. Not just to go, yeah, by myself. Mm -hmm. I would skip school and go to the graveyard. That's what I would do Mm -hmm. Uh, because I I was drawn to that, and this is the only place uh, where I felt uh, at home. Interesting. Uh, And in Paris, there's some very beautiful uh, Gothic graveyards, Mm -hmm. and I would spend uh, hours and hours and hours. uh, Looking at graves and looking at crypts and uh, uh, entering and bre- breaking and entering into crypts and uh, mm-hmm. uh, going inside uh, uh, mausoleums and uh, uh, taking stuff because uh, that's what I uh, ended up doing. Uh, and I would bring it home uh, bones and uh, remains.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And then, uh, you know, my, my room. Uh, because uh, when I, I used to go to graveyards, I still was living at my parents. But uh, I had like um, I had put a, a padlock on the um, on the uh, in the cellar in the um, the basement. Mm-hmm. So the basement was uh, I only only me had access to the basement. So it, this is basically where I uh, stashed all my uh, all the stuff that I found in graveyards. Uh, so I had this uh, altar that I would pray to, satanic altar and bones and skulls and uh, human war, uh, ashes that uh, because I was stealing urns too. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, the fact of working in a morgue, of course, it was more than a job. Uh, for me, it was uh, uh, the best thing I could do. I, I, would, uh, I was very... Um, um, in a state of constant uh, agitation uh, at all times when I was working there.
1: Mm.
0: And uh, the only thing that I didn't like was working with the co-workers. Uh, and and uh, since it was a whole the habit, uh, I started to devise plans to get rid of them.
1: Oh, so, oh boy. <laughs>
0: yeah. <Right. laughs> well so yeah I had plans in my hand and I nearly did it actually that there was one guy who uh, I went to his place one day uh, he had, uh, invited me for a drink after work and uh, I had a pocket knife with me and uh, I uh, I was feeling the knife in my pocket and I was decide- undecided as to whether to stab him or not or you know I you know uh, it was a time where I was very, it was very hard for me to think about consequences of the things that I would do, because I I felt like, uh, you know, nothing could could stop me, basically. So, and I I really, uh, and that's a common trait to uh, all the people who do those kind of things. It's a total uh, lack of um, fear. Mm. You just don't know what fear is. You You just don't know. So this coworker,
2: this coworker that you um, planned on possibly killing, what, what was what was so bad about him, or what was it that you thought made him possibly be deserving of that? Did he annoy you, or you just didn't like that he worked with you? What was the issue?
0: The issue was that that morgue, it was three other guys, and they all knew each other outside of the uh, the hospital, so they would hang out with each other all the time. Uh, they were like a, a small uh, family unit mm-hmm. uh, one of them was dating uh, the daughter of uh, the the older guy okay. so it was uh, they, they were always doing private jokes and uh, you know joking about stuff that they had done during the weekend etc and I was a, an outsider right plus I just didn't like the fact that uh, you know they, they weren't like me and I wasn't like them they were you know your your, your Typical, uh, I don't know, I don't even know how to describe them, but uh, regular Joes, you know, uh, soccer fans, uh, yep. they would uh, talk about shit that they had seen on TV the day before. And I just couldn't relate to them. And uh, they just annoying me on a constant basis. And you have to understand something. For me, it was a uh, an honor to work there. And, right. I f- and I thought that they did not deserve to work there. So So they they, they they, didn't they they,
2: didn't see the job the way you did, they didn't hold it as as high as as you did. And exactly exactly for
0: them, it was just yeah, exactly. I took it personally because for me that I for me I had developed this special relationship with death, the entity, and for them it was just a job. So uh for me they did not deserve to work there, and uh so in my very, very warped way of thinking. I, f- I saw them as, uh, as uh, rivals and as uh, people that I had to get rid of. Mm.
2: How, so how that was almost... one of the... Man.
0: Yeah, it, uh, you know, it was one of the, major, the, the many things that was going through, on through my mind all the time because, you know, when you're in that mindset, your, your, your wheels are spinning all the time different mm-hmm. things that you want to do different uh you know you you, you want to kill everybody so any excuse and then anything is you know is is an excuse anything is an excuse and so, so is that the kind me, of thing
2: where, where when you woke up every day is this something that you thought about every day did you think about hurting yeah. people every day
0: that, that's what i i i describe in my book I, i've written a uh, an autobiography called The Gospel of Blood.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, it, it is actually a condition called uh, uh, um, intrusive, thought, right? intrusive thoughts. Intrusive uh, thoughts. Yeah, intrusive thoughts. Uh, it's something that gets in your mind, it creeps inside your mind, and it's constant. It's constant uh, obsessions, and it never leaves you. Never, never, ever leaves you. So, the only outlet is to, you know, watch horror movies, and but it's just an outlet. And at the end of the day, when uh, you wake up, you always have those same thoughts all over and over again. It doesn't stop. So I don't know. It's the only way that uh, I can describe them is that, as that they are like, you know, you never get rid of them, never, never. That what makes these conditions so dangerous because you are. Totally set on uh, doing the thing,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and no, nothing will stop you from actually acting out your your death desires.
2: Yeah. So, so what did what did stop you from attacking your coworker on that day? On
0: that specific day, and uh, th- this is interesting because it, it shows you how twisted, my, my mind worked. I was, you know, I was playing with the knife in my pocket, looking at him, trying to figure out how I could stab him from behind, in the neck. Uh, I was uh, thinking of um, uh, the pin- fingerprints that I might left in the apartment, all those things, you know? Sure. And I was that close, that close to doing it, actually. I was he, he never... He never knew how close he was to, you know, to, to not being here anymore. Right. Um, And uh, we were talking about the job. And uh, suddenly in my mind, I I was like, okay, we are doing the same job. He's a deaf worker too. And if he, if, even if he doesn't deserve that job, he's not like the other humans. And then I, I, you know, I call it the Roman Emperor syndrome. You know, okay. the Roman Emperor syndrome. The Roman Emperor. He looks at the gladiator games. One of the gladiator falls on the uh, on the ground, and he either goes thumbs up, thumbs down. Yep. And I was like, okay, am I going down, up? Okay, thumbs up, just because it was working in the morgue with me so it was it was and, hard for you
2: to find anyone with anything in common with so at that last moment you realized yeah, that was the thing
0: yeah exactly he was a peer uh, of yeah. yours So you guys yeah that that's the ambiguity of this is that at the same time the reason why i wanted to kill him is that i thought that he didn't deserve to 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 work with me so you see all the, all the struggle we're playing with me. internal struggle yeah, all the struggle. time yeah exactly exactly very complex, very complex emotions. Mm-hmm. And sometimes uh, the destiny and fate, that just, you know, they, 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 uh, they rely on this, you know. So... Of course.
2: I mean, I, I've said this many times before where, you know, we've all had those days when you can't find your car keys and you're late. Mm-hmm. And then you wonder if you had found your car keys, maybe you would have been in a fatal car accident. You know, you never exactly. know when your time is up. You never know what, the plan is for you and that guy. Exactly. Like you said, he had no idea how close he was to not being here anymore. And Absolutely. a lot of us can say Absolutely. that. Right. Yeah.
0: Exactly. But you know, of course, when uh, the press talked about my case, etc., and there was indif- investigations in the hospital, of course they they understood what you know that what kind of individual I was. So maybe, maybe the when I was, uh, when he was thinking back at that very specific day, maybe he understood that, uh, he could have been killed. You know? mm-hmm.
2: Absolutely. Um, you also yeah. mentioned, um, uh, grave robbing and going into mausoleums and taking, uh, human remains home. Yeah. Do, can you talk me, talk to me about the first time you did that and what the feeling was and and why you did it and what the plan was with the remains.
0: The very first time I was uh, 17 uh, and um, it was uh, I had been trying to pick up locks for several months uh, in graveyards and uh, so each time I had to find a, a right time in the day where nobody would uh, see me doing it and uh, I had to understand how the locks worked. And since they were rusty, I had to, uh, you know, uh, try different techniques for, uh, so that my instruments wouldn't break, etc. So it was a long process. And after a while, I've, I managed to pick up the lock of a, a very old uh, mausoleums, mm-hmm. mausoleum. Um, and uh, when it happened, it was like, you know, when an archaeologist finds a, a, a new pyramid or something, you know, um, I felt like nobody had been there for for decades. There was like spider webs everywhere, and uh, you could really feel that uh, nobody had been there for 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 a very long time. Uh, and it was a crypt. It was very uh, richly decorated. Uh, because the, the mausoleum belonged to a family of uh, what we call white Russians. Uh, there were Russians who fled the, the revolution uh, in uh, 1917, uh, the, the communist revolution. So mm-hmm. they, they flew to uh, Western Europe and Paris. They had lots of money. Very and, wealthy, uh, yeah. Very wealthy. So their mausoleums were very, very wealthy, uh, and that mausoleum was decorated with gold, golden leaves on the wall, and stuff like that. So it was really beautiful. I found a, an atmosphere there that uh, where I felt in
2: peace with myself,
0: and I felt at the right place for me at the right time. Was it the so first time? Like, was, I'm sorry. Was like, it the
2: first time in your life that you'd really felt somewhere that you belonged? Yeah.
0: Totally, this is the only place where I felt uh, at home, okay. Uh, okay. definitely. So, yeah, the first time I stayed there for about two hours, three hours, then I would uh, often come back to the place with a book or something and spend hours reading or being by myself in the trip. And then, of course, I would see all those uh, 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 concrete slabs on the wall. And I knew that behind those slabs, there were coffins. Mm -hmm. (coughs) But I knew that, you know, in order to have access to those coffins, uh, I had to get uh, more material, crowbars, and uh, uh, it would make a lot of noise basically. Uh, But uh, so in the first months, I I didn't do anything, but then I started to try and uh, open them and uh, after, a few, yeah, after a few months I uh, succeeded in opening uh, one of those vaults and I dragged the coffin out and I opened it and this is where I saw my actual first body, I was about yeah 19, yeah.
2: And what was that first feeling of, uh, you know, you've been spending time there and now you're finally face to face with what you've been thinking about forever. What, what, was, the, what was the feeling you had?
0: I really felt like uh, um, I was breaking the last chain that was uh, uh, linking me to the rest of humanity. Uh, and I was, uh, uh, it was very, very spiritual for me, for a very spiritual experience. And, uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard about Agoris. Aghoris are a, a tribe of people in India uh there are what, what what they call sadhus, worshippers of the the god Shiva
2: okay
0: and they have uh, during that training as a, uh as a sadhus, they have to spend seven years on a funeral pyre next to a funeral pyre. okay They have to be constantly surrounded by death and uh, and funerals and cremations. They feed on uh, ashes, human ashes, they eat human flesh. Mm -hmm. It's part of their spiritual training. And of course, Westerners, when they hear that, it's totally alien for them. It's, you know, for for a standard Westerner being, you know, in constant contact with human remains and death, etc. Cannot be a a spiritual experience. But
2: It's not part of our culture. Yeah.
0: Exactly. It's not part of our culture, but for them, it makes totally sense. Mm-hmm. And I think that in my own way, I, 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 I followed the, the same path. I followed the same path. For me, it was a totally spiritual uh, uh, experience. I felt, yeah, I felt like a, some kind of revelation uh, doing those things.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And uh, probably a doctor would say, would tell you it's psychosis or... Whatever, but uh, for me, just it, was just it was who I was. So mm-hmm. um, it was part of who I was. Mm-hmm. And I I had totally accepted who I was. I didn't think that anything that I was doing was wrong or abnormal. For me, it was just me. It was just the other people who were normal and totally wrong, and I couldn't understand them, and I didn't understand how they, how they worked as human beings. Sure, so, and, but also
2: your, your world... Your world was very, very small too, so you didn't have a whole lot of people to to no, compare no, no. compare with. Yeah,
0: exactly. Uh, being a lonely child and uh, having no brothers or sisters, uh, no nephews, no no outside family, and no friends, yep. I was on uh, my own all the times. So for me, it was totally normal.
2: So. So you're face to face with this the the body with the uh, in, the the white Russian <laughs> in the mausoleum. Yeah. And uh, what happens then? Do do you do you touch the body? Do you take anything from that, that body the first time?
0: So it it was in another tomb. Uh, years later, mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, I uh, my idea was to actually cut the head off. Okay. So um, I didn't have the proper tools. So, uh, but uh, I did other things with uh, the remains, I stabbed them, I, uh, I uh, yeah, basically I stabbed them with a screwdriver mm-hmm. and then I uh, then, uh, I came back a few weeks later to get the head. Yeah, I had brought a, a hacksaw uh, and I wanted to start cutting through the head, but uh, since i had opened the coffin it was starting to uh, be warmer Uh, there was lots of uh, bugs all over Mm. the place and Mm. i just you know i i couldn't do it so i left Um, but otherwise yes when it was only skeletal remains i would bring bones back and uh, uh, i had so many bones at home yeah yeah so and, uh, I would also get uh, urns because the urns were easier to have access to. So I uh, had lots of urns uh, at my place.
2: Okay, so you said that you uh, you stabbed you stabbed the body. Um, mm. What what was? Do you remember what your thought process was? Were you was it just a way to get anger out, or so it wasn't like you were respect you didn't respect the the body? What was the thought in attacking it? it was
0: all the things I've done uh, in my life that are considered as uh, uh, violent, right? Mm -hmm. They were, for me, experience. So you have to understand each time it was to test a weapon, test something. And in that case, I wanted to to see how easy it was to stab. Mm -hmm. It wasn't even out of anger. I just wanted to make sure to, to see the resistance of the human body under a knife. It was a curiosity of mine. Yep. And uh, I didn't uh, use the knife that time. I used a the screwdriver. But in my mind, it was testing the how, how easy it was to actually uh, stick something in the body. Uh, so it might sound really weird, but uh, that, that was what was going on in my mind? Testing things mm-hmm. and testing uh, different um, uh, methods of hurting and doing things that I wanted to do on a larger scale later. Uh, it's int- it was the same thing with uh, yeah. It was, it was the interesting. Same thing I um,
2: when I was a little boy, there was a. I was outside, and I grew up in the in the Northeast in America, and there was a big frog in my driveway. And I don't know why I did it, but I put my foot on the frog and just slowly stepped on it and just to Mm. see what happened. And then, you know, all of the frog's guts came out of its mouth and I felt Mm. bad. I I immediately felt bad, but, and, but I kind of understand what you're saying where, but for me, Mm. the intention was not to, to inflict pain. I was just Mm. curious what would happen. Um, yeah, I, I immediately regretted it, but I, I understand what you mean as far as like the curiosity of, of what will happen yeah. if I do this.
0: Exactly, it was a, it was a mix of things, I guess. Uh, of course, there was sadism, but you know, it wasn't even the the, the central main thing for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just you know, experimenting things. Mm-hmm. And uh, later on, when I participated to autopsies uh, in my job, it was the same thing. I was experimenting things. I was uh, uh, intrigued by how easy it was to cut to the incisions with the, uh, the scalpel and uh, how uh, you would plunge the, the, the blade into it and it could slice like butter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, all those things and how fragile uh, the human body is. And uh, it always has been uh, a fascination of mine. And I've always been uh, intrigued by the human body and how it functions, functions as a machine. And um, I have a hard time uh, seeing the human body as something else than a machine. And I have a hard time seeing the soul driving the machine. For me, it's just a vessel and uh, Uh, you know, working with the dead all the time, you you, you tend to see other humans as vessels of Mm. eventually a soul inside or an individual inside. Mm. But what you see first is muscles, tissue, sinews, intestines. This is what you see when you meet other people. Right. It might sound weird, but this is how you you your, your your mind works when right? when you are so um when you are working with the dead all the time yeah
2: well it's, it's not much different the way uh soldiers have to kind of see things the same way you know if you're yeah. if you're at war you can't necessarily look at your enemy as a father or a mother or a soul or someone's child you have to look at them as just a piece of meat that is trying to hurt you in a way. So that sounds like a similar... Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, they are trained that way. Except that for them, it's not an individual experience. Right. This is something that they are taught to do. It's like cops. They are taught to treat people a certain way. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not going to go cop bashing here, but uh, Mm -hmm. I've Mm -hmm. known cops a lot, and this is how they they do. They are trained that way. They are trained to, to see individuals as suspects first and then they ask questions later Mm -hmm. so um, yeah it's the same process you have it's easy to train the the human mind Uh, whether it's soldiers cops judges even uh, it's easy it's really easy
2: so you mentioned uh, you you went back to the the uh, the morgue and that's where you claimed that you tried to eat human flesh for the first time is that right
0: yeah 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 it happened uh, after the autopsies, when I was, uh, uh, my job, my task as a, as a morgue worker was to stitch them back and uh, to do the, the stitches, yeah, the, the incision. Yep. So of course I was left alone when uh, doing this because the surgeon was away with all the, uh, the stuff that he had put in boxes, etc. Uh, and uh, after a while, when I was left alone, out of curiosity and uh because of a long life lifelong obsession with this uh (coughs) i actually uh tasted it so later on yeah um what was
2: the was the first person that you consumed was it a man a woman do you remember the age or the even the person's name of the of the first time
0: Totally no, I I have absolutely no recollection of the name or the face, just remember it was a a male, Mm -hmm. Uh, but uh, it was in his 60s or 70s, you know, the usual uh, age group that we uh, deal with when we work in morgues. Uh, You know, when somebody dies in a hospital, usually you only ask for an autopsy when there is a suspicion of something, when it's not really clear. And back in those days, in the, the late eighties, uh, there was still a lot of uh, uh, pathologies where you, uh, that required autopsies. Uh, nowadays, in 2021, 20, uh, they, they don't uh, often do autopsies uh, a lot because it costs a lot. Uh, um, but back in the days, yes, there was a, a few pathologies that required uh, the hospital to conduct an autopsy so they basically were in the same age group and uh, yeah between 50 and uh, 70 uh, yeah that age group so yeah it was a, a male but I don't really don't remember the rest. Yeah.
2: What, um, what part of the body did you eat and how much did you have that first time?
0: That very first time it was from the abdominal cavity Uh, that was the what was the easiest to access for me, because this is what was wide open in front of me and that I had to stitch back up. So uh, I uh, know it was just bits and strips uh, that I sliced, very small uh, bits that I uh, tasted uh, raw. And then uh, later on, because First time I did it, of course, I was like, okay, uh I hope nobody sees me doing this. <laughs> I it. hope so.
2: Yeah, I would think yeah. you would not want someone to see that.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But then I found out that you know I was really left alone uh in the autopsy room. Uh the others were busy with something else. So it was easy for me to actually get those pieces, put them in a, a container. Put them in my backpack because I had my backpack. I, w- I would bring my backpack every day uh, at work and bring them home. So this is when I tried to cook and uh, fry, etc., etc.
2: And yeah. what, what was your preference? <laughs>
0: uh, fry, fry, yeah, yeah, definitely fry. I'm okay. uh, not, I'm not a great cook, so I wouldn't, you know. People tend to think of cannibals as, as great cooks. <laughs> But uh, it's not really sophisticated, you know. Right. I would try you know, different sauces and different things, but at the end of the day, it was the same meat cut the same way mm-hmm. and fried the same way. So it was just, you know. Also, you tend to imagine that uh, I would eat, like, huge steaks and, huge, you know. No, there were, like, strips, like, that big, usually.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Small strips because I couldn't afford to get, like, White stacks from the legs or the thigh Of course, of right. course, I've been noticed. So, but the thing was that it was done on a regular basis. Uh, that was my question: about,
2: is, is how often? How often did you find yourself doing that?
0: I'd say on uh, during the, the the ten months where I was doing that, about like three, four times a month. Yeah, maybe.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: And, Plus uh, I was doing something else because I was uh, also part-time working in the surgery unit and we're in conjunction with the, the blood bank.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: I would get the blood bags from the blood bank, bring them to the surgery unit. And I had found a system to steal the blood bags, some of the unused blood bags. So uh, I would also uh, uh, bring them home and uh, do stuff with them. Yeah.
2: Oh, my stuff, what would you do?
0: Uh, so drinking of course then uh, mixing it with the meat and I even painting the skull with uh, one of the blood, blood bags yeah. yeah
2: so I know you didn't have uh, people in your life but did you ever serve human to anybody else unknowingly or did you ever do anything like that did you have any, guests no, or no, any? no,
0: no no, no. Uh, I've read a lot about Russians who would do that uh, there's a lot of Russian killers who have done that. I don't mm-hmm. know why Russia or if there is anything special about Russia. Uh, but uh, no, me, no, no. For me, I, I wouldn't, it would be a waste.
2: Russians, uh, I mean? you know, if, if you, you might be like me, where I still to this day watch a lot of horrible videos of gore and attacks and, and murders. And I still have that curiosity to this day, but Russians, yeah. Russians almost seem to be the most, violent or the the most cold uh of anywhere in the world of of those kind of people and i don't know why that is either do you have any idea
0: i think it's cultural yeah i think it's cultural and uh the thing is we don't know many things about their their uh true crime history we only know the biggest cases like chicatillo uh, and several others mm-hmm but uh you know during communist, the communist days they they would hide those uh, those cases they wouldn't talk about that because you know it would make a bad, bad press but bad, but bad, uh, bad publicity for the the, the the Russian Empire, the communist empire but uh, even even recently without even any any communist rulers anymore they, they tend not to talk about those cases anymore and uh, when the, uh, we hear about cases just because it's really, uh, you know, it's really extraordinary, even for them. So, imagine their everyday cases, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. But, yeah. yeah, I don't know, maybe, uh, <coughs> culturally speaking, that they, they've been through several, uh, uh how's it called, um. Famines?
2: Yes. Yep.
0: Uh, yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah. Uh, they, they've resorted to cannibalism, uh, in the past, even in the 1950s and mm-hmm. after that. So this is something that they have in them. Maybe it's in their blood. Never right. Know.
2: Right. It could yeah. be. Yep. It's like yeah. a, a secret part of the Russian culture, perhaps the Russian soul. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I know we don't have all day, but I wanted to jump ahead a little bit to uh, yeah. to the point that you decided to take somebody's life, and it's a it's a it's a sad story, obviously for for the the man who lost his life. But I want to know uh, possibly like when the decision was made to do that, and then talk us through you know that the day that it happened and and what what went down.
0: As I told you a bit earlier, I was—I uh, had those obsessive thoughts, right? And when I was working in the morgue, those obsessive thoughts were focused on something else. They were, they were focused on working in the morgue, so it was an outlet for me for for all those uh, obsessive thoughts. Uh, but then uh, I uh, was unemployed, and uh, I would, uh, you know. Uh, first, I, I wanted to, because I had to make a, a, another set of keys for the mall, actually. I went to a lo, uh, locksmith and I asked him to make me another set of keys of the mall. So I had the, the actual keys to the mall. Uh, so my plan was to go back during a, during a weekend and wait for the other co-workers to come and uh, shoot them by, by, one by one, kill them. And, uh, yeah, that was the plan, uh, basically. Uh, uh, But then uh, um, I was thinking of, you know, doing this, killing. But uh, uh, I was thinking of something, doing it in the long term. See what I mean? So actually not getting caught. Uh, So I was devising plans on, you know, finding a way to uh, not, getting caught doing it. Um, and uh, my girlfriend at the time was uh, a professional uh, dom, uh, Dominatrix. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? yeah. And she was using in some kind of a network uh, that existed in France before the internet. It was called Minitel. It was uh, some kind of a computer network that you would have access to via... Like chat rooms uh, and stuff like that? Some kind of chat room. It was uh, like Craigslist or you know, oh, even Grinder or yeah. See. Okay. Uh, uh, so it was mostly used for um, uh, um, small ads and contacting people, and especially uh, in the king scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was used both by uh, the SLM community and. Uh, uh, the gay community to uh, hook up and meet people, etc. Okay. At a time when uh, you didn't have access to all those apps that you have now. Sure. So uh, my girlfriend at the time, she was using that to meet her clients, etc. And I would watch her do. All right. Uh, so I knew how those networks worked. And uh, I started to understand that it was easy uh, to get uh, 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 meet someone up uh, via this network without leaving any trace because you would uh, call the people from public phone booths. Uh, They were a thing uh, back in those days and uh, they would easily uh, give you an appointment somewhere and some even gave you their addresses because they they wouldn't uh, no they, they had no reason to fear anything right uh, and if you want to if you
2: want to hook up you need to give someone your your address exactly right
0: so this is how i got the address of this person and the idea was not you know the idea was uh it was like you know in the crypts it was to experiment something okay Mm-hmm. And uh, the thing I wanted to experiment was actually the, 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 the gun that I had bought. I had bought a gun, and it was a, a gun that's used for uh, sports, uh, target shooting. It was a .22 caliber gun, and I was not sure if that gun would be enough if I, if I wanted to kill my coworkers properly. It's I a very, very small, sure. pe-
2: for people that don't know, a 22 yeah. is a very, very small caliber uh, yeah. weapon i mean obviously it still exactly. kills but it's not like a 44 magnum yeah. or some big gun that exactly, does yeah. massive damage right
0: and the thing with the 22 is that it gains velocity from a long when you shoot from a long distance when you shoot at a close range uh the bullet doesn't gain enough velocity to have its maximum impact oh so, I, I didn't know that okay Yeah, yeah, it's it's really uh, the velocity itself is a a key factor in the 22. Uh, So I knew a guy who worked in a gunshot who taught me those things because I didn't know. And uh, so when I I bought that 22, I was uh, wondering if it would be enough. And since my girlfriend at the time was uh, easily uh, meeting up people via that that way, uh, I decided to use that same network to contact a guy, uh, go to his place, and shoot him with that gun. And that's what I did, basically. Uh, So there was no emotion. There was no anger. Uh, It was totally random, because uh, a few minutes before chatting with the guy, I didn't even know he existed. Mm. So it was totally random, totally random. And um, it wasn't even motivated by... uh, because. You would think okay, uh, uh, since I'm straight and the victim was uh, was gay, you would easily think, yeah, it's uh, it's a hate crime or whatever. Not even. And this is what you know you have to understand. Uh it's not because you uh not because it happened that way that it was a hate crime, not at all. Because there was it wasn't personal. Hate. There was nothing personal it wasn't about personal. it. Personal, exactly, could have been anybody. And it could have been somebody in the graveyard because I had also this, you know, when I would go to graveyards, I would see other people, tourists, etc. And in my mind, I had the same process, seeing them and thinking that they did not belong there and they did not deserve to be in the graveyard. Only me. It was my territory.
2: In a way way that you saying it's not personal almost makes it harder for the public to understand. You know, even someone like me, like it's... It makes it so much more difficult to wrap my head oh, yeah. around, you know, that the, the yeah. fact that it, it is just the the luck or the unluck of the draw for, for that man. Totally, yeah. Totally, totally. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. You know, it's the same, and if I would compare my uh uh train of thought to a criminal type, I would compare it to the mass shooter. Mm. Right? Because the mass shooter, okay, he has a more or less knows more or less we will target but at the end of the day he shoots at uh, anybody of course he will go back to his school because he was he's been bullied there or whatever right. and he will shoot at everybody inside but he will not look out for one specific person he will just you know shoot uh, every everyone inside right and If I I had to compare my my mindset uh, during those days to a specific type of criminal, that that would be the type of criminal, I guess. Or maybe someone like the Zodiac Killer who did not have any specific target in mind, etc. But, uh, you know, I was watching the Son of Sam documentary on Netflix. I just watched Uh, that the other night, yes. Yeah. And all those rumors of satanic cults, etc. cetera. I, I, I've read the, the Moritieri book uh, years and years ago. And uh, being in the satanic scene myself uh, and understanding the motives behind the uh, Berkowitz, all I see is an incel getting, you know, a guy who didn't get laid when he, he was a teenager and he, he was just shooting on his frustration, you mm-hmm. know, acting on frustration. And I don't see any uh, occult or weird motive behind it and if i can you know tell you that it's because i can easily see that this guy uh was driven by a deep hatred to, towards women right that seems uh, it seems pretty clear yeah yeah for me it's really clear and this guy invented this story of a satanic cult etc because he had an agenda as being a born-again christian that was his agenda you know it's it's always easy to to find a scapegoat and, uh, you know, you know, the devil made me do it basically. Right. But, uh, I, I easily, uh, can understand motives and that that's a, a thing that I've learned with time during the, behind serial crime. Cause, uh, I, I, I more or less know what's going on through the head of the, the, the people. Uh, the one I relate maybe the most is uh, Jeffrey Dahmer. Okay. Uh because he had a fascination with physical death and mutilation, etc. Uh so th- this is something I can easily understand and the way he became like that I can understand, you know. Uh and I uh it's harder for me to understand uh, a, a killer like uh, I don't know the Green River Killer, or et cetera, because it's a totally different type of, uh, of motive and ammo. And uh, this is hatred. Those kind of car- crimes are hate crimes. They're, they're yeah. hate crimes against against sex workers,
2: mm-hmm. hate
0: crimes against uh, specific uh, individuals that represent something that they they, they, they they think is evil or bad. So there is judgment from their part. And what sets me apart, and sets maybe other criminals apart, is that there's actually no uh, emotional bond with the the victim.
2: But there is—you you do have a um, there is a bit of judgment from you, though. Like when you wanted to kill your coworker because he didn't appreciate yeah. the job. Like you also have True. some of that judgment to you as well, right? True. Yeah.
0: True. It, it it's a judgment and it's a judgment not based on what society taught me was right or wrong. It's judgment based on what I thought was perceived as a a relationship with an entity
1: Mm -hmm.
0: and that entity being uh, deaf, you know, Mm -hmm. Uh, and that relationship that I was, uh, 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 that was growing uh, in me and that uh, bond that I felt, with this entity. Uh, For me, other people could not share it and I was more or less chosen in that way. Uh, So it definitely was a judgment from my part, of course, but at the same time, it was not a judgment based on moral values or something that was taught to me by society. Uh, but yes, it was uh, also judgmental, of course.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. So you you go to what's his name was Thierry? Is that his, his name?
0: Yeah, that's it. Yeah.
2: So you go to his apartment. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, so he opens the door. Uh, I had the weapon uh, in my pocket. He, I stepped in. He turned to close the door. Turned towards me, and that's when I shot him.
2: Right away, just no, yeah, no right conversation, no
0: interaction, nothing,
2: no, no, and nothing. The moment, like when when you walked into the apartment, I know that you when you were with your coworker, you weren't sure what was going to happen. When you stepped yeah. into the to Thierry's apartment, did you know for sure that you were going to do it this time?
0: Oh yes, yes, definitely. I was totally sure. There was no hesitation, and uh, the the wheels were in motion. I couldn't stop. Nothing could have stopped stop me.
2: Were you uh, were you nervous in your stomach? Did you have adrenaline, or were you just calm? Uh, what was your What was, was your body very, going? Through?
0: I rem- remember being uh, weirdly bizarrely. I was very very calm. Uh, my heart rate was totally normal. I just. It was like you know, being on an automatic pilot, doing things and not even, you know, sometimes I I would feel like I was watching me doing this.
2: That was I was going to ask. I was going to ask you if you felt like you were out of body or did you feel very present?
0: Both. Actually, uh, I felt all the sensory overload, the the smell of gunpowder, the energy in the room everything and uh even more because for me it was a spiritual thing spiritual experience so uh i even felt the physical presence of death in the room
2: right because you 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 keep mentioning that you the the idea of death to you it's a it's almost like a god where it's a it's its own entity i guess that's the best word you keep using is that death is not death is not something that happens death is something that exists. Yes.
0: Right? For me, it is. For me, yep. it is. It's like, uh, you know, it's, it might sound childlike maybe, but, you know, when you think about God, it's also a childlike notion. I agree. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> uh, except that my childlike notion was based on experience since I had actually uh, felt the experience of death. Uh, seen my grandfather. I had seen other relatives, visited them in the morgues or the funeral homes. I had spent all my uh, teenage years in graveyards and I had worked in that morgue for about a year. So I had another foot in the grave and I was, you know, the only thing that was missing was actually giving death and being, you know, the, the left hand of death. So, so that was was missing.
2: Your childhood... And all those, you know, five years in the graveyard and the morgue were kind of all leading up to this moment for you. Yeah,
0: exactly. It was uh, all these, all those things that I am telling you. There, there are progression, and um, it just not like I woke up one day and I decided to do this. It's Mm -hmm. all, all my experience as a as a kid, as a, as a teenager, and as a young adult we were leading to that point. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we're leading to other things because I had all things in mind. And, uh, uh, it was the beginning of my journey. This okay, in my mind. Mm-hmm. So it was not the end. This is another thing you have to understand. It was, you know, it was just something I had to go through to go to another level. And um, maybe that's why I felt so emotionally detached at the time, because it wasn't really what I had in mind. This was just practice.
1: Mm.
0: See what I mean? Yeah, I, I know do. That it, sounds, do. Uh, well, so, it might sound horrible saying this, but in my mind, and if you want to understand how my mind works or other minds work regarding to those Kind of individuals, mm-hmm. you have to understand what really goes on in the mind and the, the wills that are in motion. And most killers, they will lie to you when they're in jail, they when they're in prison. They will say, "Okay, uh, this is what went through my head," etc. But they will they will tell you that to sound normal because mm-hmm. they fear of being judged. You know, I don't have that fear of being judged anymore. You know, I've been on trial. I, I'm out of, of prison. And I'm not trying to be a normal um, individual. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to have a low profile like so many criminals who go out to jail and try to vanish, you know.
2: That's something I want to get into at the end because um, yeah. I, I have a lot of questions about that. Um, but I sure. do want to say that I, I really do, I appreciate your openness and honesty about this um because okay. you know i i don't agree with with obviously what what you did i think it's a i mean it's a it's a good thing hor- for you it's a, it's a horrible thing but i am very mm. interested in the mindset mm. and uh like i said cuz i i have so many similarities to you as far as childhood mm-hmm. and i'm always interested as to why people go different different directions so i do appreciate sure. you, you being so honest and open about it thank um you. thank you so the moment you you shoot him i you can go through the details if you want but it 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 didn't happen easily you had to shoot him multiple times and he didn't he didn't pass away easily it was very hard for him um yes but when uh, it was
0: orino uh, lasted like 15 minutes
2: yeah yeah, yeah. which is te- which is terrible but when it was finally over with did you feel Did you feel a sense of accomplishment? Did you have any regret in that moment? Like, talk me through um, your thoughts right after you realized that you had completed your task.
0: So, this was the first step. And I had many, many things in my mind going through about what to do next. Uh, The thing is, I had brought something to uh, go to the second step, which was. Uh, using knives, etc., and uh, a scalpel that I had stolen from the morgue. and but I had I had heard footsteps because it was an apartment. Uh, there were footsteps in the stairs, and it was a call back to reality. And I understood that the gunshots, even if they weren't really loud, because the .22 caliber is not. Doesn't produce a, a very loud noise. It's like a a slamming shutter door. Yep. Yeah, a pop. Yeah, but still, I was, you know, wondering if it had been heard. And since the, the footsteps were really fast, I was like wondering if somebody was calling for help. So I just left him as is, uh, lying on the floor, and I left. Um, when I came back, I was in a very agitated state of mind. Um, um, one of the things because there was many things going through my mind, but one of the things that I wanted to do was actually film myself doing this. Right? Mm-hmm. So it was of, of course at the time when, when the GoPro didn't exist, uh, all, all we had access to were, were cameras. Uh, VHS recorders so I wanted to buy a camera so I took the idea of that person and bought a camera right? and uh, uh, such was my state of mind that I didn't even ask myself if uh, the person uh, uh, selling me the camera would make a, a record of the stolen check because it was a stolen check mm-hmm. and check my ID or whatever When I came back home, I I watched the news and uh, there was, and this is how I got very lucky at first. At the same time I was doing this, three hours later, uh, five blocks away, there was a police shootout involving uh, two individuals who had shot down uh, five people. It was a major in the news. Three three policemen died. One of the shooters had died. And uh, his girlfriend was still alive and she had shot uh, at cops, etc. It was a major, 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 major story in the news.
2: Absolutely, yeah.
0: So since they were not talking about my case, but they were talking about that case, I thought that they suspected them of having done what I had done. All right. So for me, I watched this. The following days, okay, the press mentioned the murder and uh, there was something on TV, but of course, everything was focused on that other case. And um, the more days passed, and the more I thought I had gotten away with it. So I was preparing the other step, the next step. Uh, and that that step involves me going back to the morgue, etc. So I went back to the morgue during the weekend Mm -hmm. uh, with the set of keys that I had uh, uh, made a copy of. And uh, I um, decided to go back before Christmas because this happened in October, but I wanted to do it for Christmas, using Christmas Day uh, to do that. I wanted to go to the mall back on Christmas and uh, kill all the, the co- co-workers. This was the next step. Why, why Christmas? Uh, why Christmas for you? Oh, the symbol. You know, uh, sure. everybody. Yeah, yeah. The symbol. Just the symbol. Not even the religious symbol. Just the symbol of everybody, you know.
2: A happy, happy, a joyous, happy holiday. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So, yeah, that was, uh, that was the next plan. Uh, but uh, what I didn't know, of course, was that there was this investigation going on and they were actually uh, uh, more or less identifying me step by step. And uh, like four, yeah, five weeks after, uh, I was arrested and uh, I was in custody. And this is how it all began
2: okay and did you when you were arrested like did you when you saw the police did you know immediately that they had that they got you or how did how did the arrest go
0: uh yeah immediately i knew that uh, it was over because you know i didn't care to get rid of uh, any weapon so everything was uh, at my place Mm -hmm. um so i knew that the ballistics etc i knew that you know right uh, so I was left, uh, on my own a lot because, you know, it's one of the techniques as cops, they have to leave you on your own so that you have time to think over and over again. And, uh, it, you know, for them, it's easier to confess. So I was, you know, uh, thinking about all the options that I had and, uh, i I've, I've uh, realized that the best option for me was to confess to the uh, what, what what I had been doing uh, except that there was one question remaining what what's up with all the other things that would find at my place
2: because you had uh, you had just, there was bones and there was blood and yeah. ashes and um, exactly. All kinds of things which probably made them think that this is probably a bigger issue than just yeah. a random murder. Okay, yeah,
0: that's what they, they told me when the, they were doing the police search. Uh, one of the cops, uh, he acted like I wasn't in the room. I was in the room because uh, it's by law you have to be in the room to so the, you actually see what they, they are taking away or using it using as evidence. But he acted like I wasn't in the room. He told the other cops, okay, this is going to lead us to other cases uh because they found other weapons and they found the skulls etc mm-hmm. and they were, they were a bit taken yeah let's say that it's the first time that they actually had to deal with a, a similar case right. Uh, right interestingly enough they were investigating in a, a, a serial murder case in paris um, which became one of the major serial murder cases in paris and uh, we ha- I had the same investigators uh, investigating that murder case and mine. So I don't know. They never really told me, but uh, I don't know if they uh suspecting me or, or whatever. But uh, I would imagine, they were that
2: really... I'm sure you would have been one of the top su- top suspects for something like that.
0: Well, right. yeah. Anyways, for them, it was, you know, they, they, they were convinced that. Uh, something else was going on. So Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that was what they had in mind. And when uh, the thing with France is that it's not cops who did the investigations after you've been arrested. It's a judge. Uh, This is why it takes so long for uh, people in France uh, to go on trial. You, You have to wait at least two or three years to actually be on trial. So you remain in custody for two or three years. You don't even know what kind of sentence you will uh, have or if you will be uh, released or uh, due to lack of evidence, but you have to wait two or three years because the investigating judge, that's how he's called, has to make his own investigations. And it's not only about uh, investigating the case itself, it's also uh, all the psychiatric evaluations. Right. And uh, for my specific case, the they spent lots of resource on the, the, the psychiatric uh, evaluation. Usually uh, you have two or three doctors who examine you. And I had uh, seven doctors uh, who, who examined me for, for a period of two years. And so, what, did they,
2: what, what did What kind of conclusion did the doctors come to in, in your case, as far as any kind of um, mental illness or anything like that? Was there any of that?
0: So the thing is, um, they came up with something that I gave them because I knew from the start that, uh, if I told them exactly what was going on through my mind, they would send me to a psychiatric ward and I would never get out, mm.
1: mm-hmm. you know,
0: it's, it's as simple as that. I, I knew from an outside perspective that I, I couldn't be cured. Right. Uh, yeah, yeah, I was beyond that, you know. Right. So I had to find something that could be cured. So I, I spent some time. Uh, I also, one thing I, I didn't tell you before working in the morgue, I uh, uh, studied one year of psychology at the University of Juicio uh, la Sorbonne. It's a big university in in Paris. So I had tools. I had you know psychology tools. I knew a few things about psychology uh, and uh, psychiatry. So when uh, it was my turn to be uh, evaluated by a psychiatrist, I knew that if I told them exactly what was going on through my head, the fact that I was planning on other things, et cetera, yeah, I would be you know, sent to a dark hole uh, somewhere and never get out. So mm-hmm. I, I had to make them feel that uh, I had something that could be cured through medicine and medication, so, uh, I told them, for example, that I heard the, the dead talk to me when I worked in the morgue, that I got orders from them. For the, so, according to them, it was uh, uh, some, some kind of schizophrenia that was developing there in the morgue. And uh, under French law, <coughs> it was uh, uh, the diminished responsibility. And diminished responsibility it's more or less something that uh, uh, spares you a life sentence. Right. Okay, because because of diminished responsibility, you get a lesson sentence if you actually get medicine and see a, a, a doctor on a regular basis, etc. So it all lasted two years where there was this, you know, battle between me and them and me trying to, you know... Uh, well, not trying, uh, just giving them an interpretation of the facts that make me look like I was mentally ill when it happened, that I was not totally responsible for what I had done,
2: right, and right.
0: that I could be cured. Uh, you know, psychiatry, the way that I see them, they're, they're like, you know, psychiatry is a—it's a face. Uh, it's actually a face a face in something that's called psychiatry. so they they have a they have a, a patient mm-hmm. and they feel reassured when that patient comforts them in their own theories about mental health see what i mean
2: yes i do
0: they feel justified they feel that they're doing the right thing and they feel useful so if they you you, you present them a way of thinking that they think can be cured and a pathology that's simple, that can be described, uh, easily and easily be cured. Then, you know, for them, it, it comforts them in the, the belief system and, uh, they do not question right the fact that, uh, what you're telling them is real or
2: not. And so, in your case, it wasn't real. You were, you were, oh, no. you were in, in essence lying to them and telling yeah. them what 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 you thought you had to say to spare your life or to um exactly make your sentence lighter but did you exactly. did you think at that time that there was any hope for you as far as uh um getting out of the mindset that you were in or did you think that there was no changing for you at that point no for me it, things would go worse okay. honestly
0: the way i saw it I would go, okay, maybe f- spend 10 years, 15 years behind bars, get out when I would be age 35, maybe 40, and do all those things again. Mm. That, that was the, the program. That was the, the idea. Yeah. And, okay. you know. Then, uh, you know, I even started to write to uh, Cyril Kellers in jail. I started to correspond with uh, uh, people like Richard Ramirez, and you know, I, I would actually get letters from from those people, mm-hmm. and it was not uh, out of curiosity, uh, etc. It was more like you know, knowing more about what drove them to kill, or you know, get tips, or you know. Uh, so these were these
2: were people that you, in essence, uh, looked up to and admired in yeah. some ways. Yeah,
0: exactly, and I. I more than that, it was people that I, I thought only them could understand me. Right. And vice versa.
2: Right.
0: For me it was, you know, I, I didn't feel part of the rest of humanity anymore. I was part of the the, the you know. Subculture or something. Yeah. 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 I was a criminal. I was a uh, you know, as as soon as you, you have handcuffs on you for a major crime, you're not part of humanity anymore. Whatever they say, whatever they do, even if they say, okay, we will try to re- rehabilitate you. No, no, it's it's just lies. As soon as the you have the shackles, as soon as you are sentenced uh, for a criminal offense, you're not part of humanity anymore. So I was, al- or, uh, I was already feeling an outcast. So imagine me in jail being treated as one of the worst criminals that... The, the system i would ever seen in France. And how was I supposed to find a way out of this? See what I mean?
2: Did, did part uh, of was being... Stuck.
0: Go ahead. Yeah. I was stuck in this. I was stuck. I was stuck. It, and it's not like I didn't feel... The... Anyways, I felt like that. I didn't feel I was part of that anymore. I was not part of the system. I was just trying to fuck with the system as long as possible and as much as possible. Mm -hmm. So this is what I did in in jail. And I did it in very different ways all the time. And uh, uh, I got this lesser sentence of 12 years instead of uh, 20 because uh, the the prosecution asked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The prosecution had asked for 20 years in jail. But thanks to the, the shrinks, uh, What evaluated me, I uh, got 12. Okay. Uh, And uh, there's a system in France for good behavior. Uh, You get one third of your sentence off. So I served only eight out of those 12 years. Mm -hmm. Uh, So maybe, maybe for some people, eight years is enough to be reformed or to to change. But uh, it wasn't really the case for me. Uh when I got out, I was more or less in the same uh frame of mind. Okay. Uh, but things happened in my life later on
2: that made me human. What are um, those things? That that that's the I'm I'm really interested to, interested to know when the when that happened for you. When I mean it seems like you're how old were you when you got out of out of prison? 30?
0: 30, 30. it was my 30th birthday, uh, March 22 of 2002, 30th birthday.
1: Okay. And so... Right
0: before, the day before, the day before it was, uh, I'm going to tell you because it was very important for what happened next. So, you know, I was, the day before I was like, okay, tomorrow I'm getting out. Uh, uh, honestly, I'm really tempted to do things again. Then they escorted me to a room and they said, okay, you have to wait. It was the room where you have conversations with your, your lawyer. There's this guy who comes in. Turns out he's a, a, a state appointed uh, psychiatrist. He says, okay, this is the first in criminal history uh, for me. I have to evaluate you at the end of your sentence. We'd never do that, but I have to evaluate you and see if we have to transfer you to a mental uh, institute uh, instead of uh, releasing you tomorrow okay. because of the nature of uh, the crimes etc so i was like okay i'm fucked, I'm yeah. fucked. because you know uh, <laughs> uh, i was writing towards all, all those here killers and uh, i was getting mails from uh, from uh, satanic cults and you know uh,
2: that doesn't help your case
0: <laughs> yeah no it didn't have my case at all i was Painting serial killers—I was known for that. My art was uh, on exhibit in the, the Museum of Death in uh, 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 in LA. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know, I knew that uh, I was fine. But um, okay, the evaluation t- took uh, eight eight uh, hours during those eight hours, it was really exhausting for me, but during uh, those eight hours, I was on working on the scene line and I was, I had to, you know, uh find a way to uh, convince that guy that uh, everything was all right. Okay. I don't know how, but I, I found a way to Work out of this situation," he said. He told me at the end of the the eight hours, he said, "Okay, I see that uh, you're still drawn by some things, etc. But uh, if we send you to a psychiatric institute, since you're not really psychotic, then we'll have to eventually release you. And the anger that you will build up while you are in that psychiatric institute will be ten times." More dangerous than the than if you are released to tomorrow. Wow. And I understood, I, yeah, it made me understand that okay, basically those guys then they know what I'm, you know, able to do. But they also know that uh, they they. I don't know. This guy managed to face me with my inner demons. See what I mean? It does sound like made that.
2: Because um, in, in yeah, America, me... in America, that would never happen. In America, they want to keep you. Uh, under control yeah. and um, locked away as long as possible, and this yeah. this man seems like he knew that for public safety and public interest, the best thing mm. to do was probably not to keep you locked up.
0: Yeah, because he would knew he, would, he knew that I, I would get out eventually because I was smart enough to talk my way out of those situations. Right. This is what he understood and he told me you, you're you're really smart you're very smart individuals you have very very dark side to you but yeah. i'm just saying to you if you want to keep going what you're doing you'll end up here you'll end up here for the rest of your life you have to find a way to accept who you are and use your energy to, for something else that is not a nuisance to other people and I was painting at the time. I was painting those pictures of syracuse and I told myself, "Okay, maybe it's right. Uh, maybe I will be tempted. Well, you know, uh, temptation—it's it's always a thing. But at the same time, I've—you know—I know my limits. Uh, I and I know that uh, you know, being in jail, and all, uh, I know there's another way of. Um, there's another outlet. There's other outlets to that dark side, sure. And it's yeah, it's mainly for me. It's uh, creation, right? Writing, uh, painting, and doing all those things that still are dark. Uh, I still paint serial and murder victims, and you know. And uh, uh, nowadays, I sell products. I sell, uh, you know. I said horrible, horrible things, but I'm not, you know, uh, I'm not actually hurting physically other people.
2: That's something that you touched on Um, earlier is this, uh, how a lot of people who have done the things that you have done, the things that you've claimed you've done is when they get out of jail, they try to distance themselves from that darkness and distance themselves from that past. But you're someone who, you know, you committed this crime, you kind right. of you know, you played the system and you 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 tricked people into giving you a shorter sentence, and yeah. you, you you got out uh on good behavior, which is which is great, and you've turned this into uh like you said, an outlet and yeah. your your art reflects your life, your art reflects your dark interests, and uh exactly. you definitely don't run from your past, which I'm sure for a lot of people, including Thierry's family, probably and friends and, and people involved in the case, whether it's the, the police and the judges and lawyers, mm. they probably have a really, really hard time with it. Understandably, exactly. but you, yeah. uh, you didn't run from it and you more kind of embrace it, uh, which you don't see very often. You know, um,
0: the, the, the way, the, the way I see it, it's simple. When I do those things, I'm very public. Uh, you know, I, I do art shows. I run this website, this company. I have a company where I sell those products.
2: Serialpleasures.com. Yep.
0: Serialpleasures.com. I have written my uh, biography, the, the Gospel of Blood. I'm, I'm very pro- public. But being public, people know what I'm doing.
1: Right. I could
0: have, good, you know, I could have uh, kept a low profile and uh, disappeared in, uh, in the void and right. nobody would know what i would be up to now and i could be doing some really bad stuff you know what i mean at least now people have a visibility of who i am what i do and uh, even though those people you mentioned the people who were involved in the the uh uh the investigation etc sometimes uh, you know journalists ask some an questions, and uh, they they say okay we he knows he's intelligent enough, and that, that's something that, that was really smart. It was by the, the judge who actually started all the investigations on my case, who actually said that uh, in the a, in a documentary. He said he's smart enough not to go back to jail. And uh, at the same time, at least, even if on a strict moral point of view, what he's doing is extremely, extremely questionable, at least. We have visibility of, over him. And the only right. thing that that we are worried about is him influencing other people.
2: It's a, it's a valid point.
0: Yeah, It's a valid point, and I respect that point. Yep. Uh, and it has happened. It has happened. There, there were actually two cases where they, the, the, the suspects uh, mentioned my name or mentioned having... You know, they they mentioned the case uh, when they were in custody. I don't know. You know, when people say, oh, oh, yeah, I was influenced by this or that, it's easy to say, but I believe in responsibility to do... I believe in, in personal responsibility. It's not because you say you're influenced by this or that, that it gets you out of your own responsibility. Okay. Sure. Uh, but sure. yeah. But it's still a valid point. But the thing is that he understood clearly is that at least, okay, I'm, you know, I'm out in the open, but at least people know what I'm doing,
2: All right? So... When these people uh, uh, say that you're an inspiration or that you inspired their, their acts, um, does any part of that flatter you? Or is it, does it turn you off? Does it bother you? Like, how do you look at that when people say that, that you influenced them?
1: You
0: know, during, because of my unique position, being a criminal that you know that's out and that you can actually reach, can actually send me mail. I actually read them. Sometimes I answer them. So, because of that position, very specific position, I sometimes get mail from people who are on the verge of doing something. Usually, teenagers or young adults. They have all those dark things inside. And I always, always, always talk them out of it. Always. I've always been that way. And, you know, if there's one thing good that I did in this life, it's this. I probably have uh, convinced a few people not to commit crimes because it's not worth it. And each time I tell them, try to find something else. Right. Don't even try to be someone else. But at least try to have a, another outlet, uh, right. something else. Because at the end of the day, when you get arrested, they will win because you'll be in jail, and they will be. They will win.
1: Yeah. Do you think so, that? Do you
2: think that um, that you could have found an outlet younger that could have kept you from doing what you did? And if so, what would that have been? What could have stopped you from doing what you did?
0: It's hard to answer that question because I, I was in a very, very dark place at the time, and I don't think that you can actually get out of the dark, dark place without going till the end. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but for someone who would be on that path but not at that stage, uh, I would recommend uh, writing and uh, writing horror novels, or uh, writing scripts for horror movies, or if you have a, a talent for drawing or, 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 or painting, try to do that too. Uh, th- there's so many things that you can actually do. And I know it's not the real deal, but you don't want to experience the real deal because it's a trap. Once you're inside, you're inside. You you will never never get out. Mm. I mean, and um, I don't know. It, it's not it's not worth it. And I'm not talking about from a moral point of view because that's the difference between me and others. I you don't have never... the
2: moral, right?
0: No, no, no. I'm I'm not on a moral debate here. I'm beyond that, way beyond that. You know, like Richard Ramirez said, uh, I'm be, I'm beyond your experience. Mm. Mm-hmm. I think that when you have a certain <coughs> achieved a certain level, you're beyond the, you're beyond anyone's experience. But what you can see in others is the journey. And if you see that it's not too late, then you, there are ways to talk them out of doing it. And uh, I, I've done that. And yeah, it's a thing that I'm proud of having done. I failed also. uh, There's a a few times where I failed, Mm. but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, as I said. It's also the the part of the the Roman Emperor syndrome. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Right. And having that choice of a life is having the power of God yourself.
2: Right. Right. You decide. Sure. Sure. So now, well, thank you for that. Um, that's an interesting point. And uh, I imagine you. part of being able to help people now, it's almost like a form of public service after the fact, you know, where you can yeah, be uh, a resource probably. for people if they wanted to approach you about it. Um, but yeah. You, you're but very- I
0: know, you know, I, I don't, you know, I know that I have way more enemies than friends. So I know that many of, of the people who are watching this will judge me be and I'm not even trying mm-hmm. to tell them out of judging me if they want to judge me. Right. And then fine. It doesn't affect me. That's all I can say. It doesn't affect me. If you right. have a judgment towards me, I don't care. I don't mind, but <laughs> right. I will not, <laughs> I will not, I will not try to talk you out of it. You know, I will not try to to tell you, Oh yeah, yeah, you know, I'm a really nice guy. When you get to know me, no, only the people who really know me know that, but, uh, uh, well pe- people. For the public eye. Yeah. yeah.
2: People <laughs> tend to get a... uh people tend to get on a, a moral soapbox all the time. And that's kind yeah. of the way I wanted to approach this is to uh show Thank you for, the respect for of a human... that approach. Yeah, the, just yeah. To, to show you the respect of uh I'm not trying to judge you. Like I have my opinions on on you know sure. on what you've done. And you know, one of my best yeah. friends, you know, his mother w- was murdered and So it's, it's personal to me in some ways, and I don't want to glorify what you've done at all, but I am just very interested in the psychology of it all. And um, like I said, just, I'm, I'm so fascinated by where things split for certain people, why, you know, two people can be raised the same way, have the same childhood yeah, and one becomes, you know, a doctor or a lawyer and one becomes a convicted killer and an artist, you know? So, and that's, that's exactly. what it is um so before we go i do want to talk about your your art and life now um you, people can go to serialpleasures.com and see you do beautiful paintings um, um Picture. yeah of course um they're very dark in nature and it's uh it's um gore death kind of uh i mean it's, it's your experiences but it's done really well and
0: I try to, uh, you know, what's interesting about painting is that the, the objects, the paintings, I mean, they have a life of their own after you mm-hmm. create them. Sometimes I, I hear about a painting that I have done like 25 years ago and somebody else owns it and it, it had a life of its own over a quarter of a Uh, uh, of a century, Century, and uh, so it's fascinating. And I believe that objects have a soul. This is why I also collect serial killer letters and Mm murderabilia and uh, objects that belong to uh, criminals because I do believe that those objects, they capture part of the soul of their owners. And when you create, as a criminal, when you create a painting, and you, you get that when you, you you hold you are holding a, a painting done by John Wayne Gacy uh, between your hands, by, uh, for example. It's more it's more than just a painting. Right. It's a painting that was done by this guy who killed 33 uh, 30, children. 33, uh yeah, uh, yeah uh, children. So it's you know it's creepy, but at the same time there's you know there's an energy coming from the painting yep. because those hands they have both created but they have killed. Right. And uh, I, my art is about. Uh, it's a reflection of that. I do wisher boards, for example, mm-hmm. uh, with the killers, and I incorporate DNA and uh, grave dirt uh, from those killers in the wisher board. So they are used by uh, people who want to invoke the souls of the those killers. See what I mean? It's not only a painting. It's also a, a knuckled, uh uh, artifact and an occult called uh, portal to another world mm. this is the way i, I see art you know mm-hmm.
1: not
0: some not only a, not only a, a painting but putting your soul in, in, inside something
2: for yeah. for someone like yourself do you see any kind of uh danger in in keeping that in your life and keeping that uh like to, to collect pieces of, of their serial killers, of serial killers, and if you think those things have a soul, does any part of you worry about that kind of reinfecting you or anything like that? I don't
0: think so, because uh, there is w- what can happen, and it's as simple as that. Bad things can happen to you with those kind of objects when you feel guilty of owning them. And it's very simple. It's a very simple concept, but it's very true. If you, if a part of you feels guilty over owning uh, uh, a letter from Ted Bundy or whatever, then get rid of that object. It's not meant for you. And uh, I, I really do believe that. It's because I do believe that the, the, the negative energy of that, that person is trapped in that object. And if you feel guilty over it, then it's not for you. Yeah, no, definitely not.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: And, uh, to this day, are you, do you get any kind of therapy? Like, how do you keep yourself in, in check? Um, I'm just curious what life is like for you now, as far as, do you ever fear yourself slipping back into old patterns or having those old feelings or, uh, impulses?
0: I'm at a point in my life where I've totally accepted who I was and my journey Mm -hmm. to where where I am today. And uh, I'm not going to get into details about stuff that happened to me in the meantime. There were many things. Mm -hmm. I'm surrounded by good persons now. I'm balanced. They accept me the way I am. And I have found uh, peace of mind uh, and nothing will get me back to my old habits. No, no, no. As long as I have my heart, as long uh, as the people I care for uh, feel are good and feel good, uh, nothing will bring me back to those days. Some people try sometimes to bring back me back to those days. Uh, you know, when, when you're somebody like me, you go to clubs, you meet new people. Some people are fascinated, but in a bad way. And they try to drag you down with them with their own, you know, their own dark stuff, dark shit that they never actually dealt with. Uh, yeah. Dealt with. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And they, they, they see you as the person who will bring it back and bring it, you know. Uh, so I, I try to avoid those persons and I easily see them coming from afar.
2: I bet. Uh, I bet. Yeah. 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 So, um, <laughs> so yeah. it's it's kind of beautiful in a way that you. It sounds like you have found a way to show other people love and also accept love from people.
0: Yeah. Right. Yeah. This this was my journey. Definitely. Right. This is a journey, and uh, I'm I'm lucky to to have Very. found that. Yeah. Yep. Um, because
2: it's it it seems like that, a lot of people in your situation, uh, you don't ever get away from that path. You never find a way to accept love from Mm. people because you're always suspect or you, like you said earlier, you didn't see yourself as a human being. So if you don't see yourself as human, how could you possibly love another human? And uh, somehow through experience and time, acceptance Mm. and art, you have found a way to, to fix those things so far. Yeah. Fixing is the word fixing exactly well i guess it's also it's in a constant state of fixing right so we're we're never perfect so it's something that you're going to have to work on um for the the rest of your life i assume but it it, it, talking to you it it, it sounds like you it's going the right direction
0: it's going the right direction and the only thing that you know triggers me now and then and is the only thing that uh You know, I I have a hard time accepting it's censorship uh, because it's it's counterproductive in my case. Mm. Maybe for some people, it's a good thing. Censorship is a good thing. But in my case, when you censor what I do, and I have experienced this a few times in my life, then uh, you're giving me reason to go back to my old ways
2: tell me you more about I mean? that tell, tell me tell me where you've been censored and um wh- why you see such a danger in it because I, I i agree with you i think censorship is uh is a dangerous slope to be on but where have you experienced censorship
0: oh it's it's mostly mostly on uh, what I, I publicly uh show on on uh, social media Okay. Uh, being banned all the time, uh, trying to find ways to distribute my products. Uh, there's a lot. We we are entering in a society which is constantly judging you for promoting or or uh, um, uh, trying to make money out of those things. But it's not the point. You see what right? I mean? When you're you're you are Painting a pay, uh, a portrait of a serial killer—you're you're not. It's not because you do that that you glorify them, and I, I never glorify uh, those persons. Uh, for me, the I, I do not see any glory in it. But what I find interesting in painting a mugshot portrait is that in the portrait that was taken, and that what I try to, to show through my art. It's the moment of truth uh, in that person, and uh, uh, this is what I try to convey through my art. Uh, and this is why my my, uh, my art is about Syracuse. It's but it's but it's because in their eyes, there is you see the moment of truth that they are totally naked. You totally see through their souls. And uh, it's not about glorifying them through the mugshot or the painting of the mugshot. It's about finding their inner uh, core, their inner their soul, trying to, to capture the soul in a painting. And in that sense, you know, it's what art is about. It's trying to find the essence of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, see what I mean? So admit,
2: all those, yeah. I see what you mean, but I, I, I hear what you're saying, but part of me, I don't totally believe that you're not glorifying it a little bit because earlier you've said that you, you know, you've looked look up to and admire these people. So I understand mm-hmm. that you're trying to capture a moment, but part of painting that, it just, it is going to glorify it a little bit. And I'm not even saying that's totally a wrong thing, but there there has to be some kind of aspect of, of of glorifying or exploiting a little bit, unless I'm completely wrong. That's just kind of how I see it. Mm. Um, I don't know, I don't know. But I hear what you're saying. When
0: I was, yeah, when I was writing with Killers, uh, the idea behind it was because I was trying to find if there was a common ground with them. Mm-hmm. If, I, if, we, if we were on the same league, or if we felt the same things, the more I, I uh, corresponded with them, the more I found, weirdly, that I had nothing in common with them, really. So, yeah, this is weird. And I felt even more isolated because of that.
1: because oh, uh, know, it's funny,
2: because most people, if they were corresponding with, uh, with a serial killer, And they realized that they weren't like them that that would be a good thing for most people but for for you you felt more alone
0: yeah exactly exactly i felt more isolated i thought that they were more human than i thought Mm -hmm. and that i i didn't feel the the connection anymore and from being a teenager Fascinated, idolizing those people. I turn into an adult that were just seeing them as uh, um, a symbol of uh, the the failure of mankind. Okay. It's a very complex
1: idea. No, about- I get
2: it. I understand that. And actually, now that you're saying that, I understand yeah. more what you mean about not glorifying it. It makes a little bit more sense now. okay well thank you for explaining that i I do understand more now Mm -hmm. what you mean um Mm -hmm. so yeah uh well thank you so much for this time um i've I've really enjoyed it i i I could probably go on another hour with more questions and maybe we'll do it maybe (laughs) we'll do it again um maybe but people people can go to your website uh serial pleasures.com and you can look at your art you can purchase your art you can buy custom-made boards and wild enough you can get some serial killer influenced sex toys which yeah quick, walk me through quickly how that came about <laughs> and are, are they selling I, are, are you selling them
0: yeah actually i'm selling them and uh, they they, they Uh yeah. it, it came up with a discussion with my girlfriend we were joking on the fact that all those netflix documentaries the, you know, so many girls are watching them because they, they, they have a crush on the killer, etc. Mm-hmm. So the idea came uh, of, uh, you know, the, basically going beyond Netflix and chill and uh, you know, watching Ted Buddy and chill. And, uh, so I created the, the pun dildo. <laughs> uh, yeah. it's, a, it's an actual dildo with a uh, 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 silicone... Uh, uh, the, Actually, actually, silicone that's used for uh, medical purposes, so it's totally safe. And it's an actual uh, adult toy. And um, I don't know, people uh, went crazy over it. And uh, yeah, it, it became a uh, Yeah, And uh, yeah, it, it started, it actually started my, my uh uh, my company, Serial uh, Pleasures, and then I went on doing other completely other things, like yetgin face mask. Nobody's mm-hmm. wearing a face mask nowadays, so mm-hmm. I designed a, a face mask that's supposed to be uh, uh, looking like decomposed dead skin, so it would totally gross out anybody who's, uh, who's looking at it. And... Very leather so, so, uh, face,
2: very, uh, leather, leather, very yeah. leather face style, very leather face
0: style. All those products because. You know all those cases that happened like more than fifty years ago, mm-hmm. and they still they still get the same audience, and that's what's crazy. You get you have those new generations of of kids and uh, young adults who discover those crimes, and uh, those crimes happen like uh, half a century ago. So mm-hmm. of course I I understand that those products they outrage a lot of people and. People think that it's totally immoral. But for those who have a dark sense of humor, it's also fun. And it's, a, it's definitely a, a very unique birthday present or a <laughs> yeah. Valentine gift. Or so, actually, yeah. you know,
2: we're, we're recording this on Mother's Day, so it might be a great gift for oh, my yeah. mother someday. You know, happy Mother's Day, Mom. Wow. <laughs> Here's your <Totally>. bundle. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, <laughs> oh, Perfect. Um, yeah, and you, you, there's a, there's a uh, Night Stalker one that, that you have up there now. Um,
0: yes, we have a St- Night Stalker one. We are mm-hmm. going to do a Gacy Pogo butt plug. Oh, boy. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah. I'm so bad.
2: <laughs> hey, I, again, yeah. like, I, I'm just, um, whether people agree or not, the fact that you have found a way to embrace uh, your dark side even after what you've been through. There's something yeah. refreshing about it, you know. You're not no. you're not bullshitting anybody. You are no, no, you no. are who at you are. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I,
0: I, you know, if people hate me, okay, so be it. And right. if people find me funny, it's even better. Yep. So,
2: also, you you have a right to earn a living, and uh, that's exactly that's because
0: thing. the thing we didn't mention at all is that uh, when I got out of jail, I have worked for 15 years in different morgues. Mm-hmm. under a new identity and after those 15 years uh they started to investigate on my past after 15 years i was working in a catholic institute and of course when they found found out about my past uh i was totally blacklisted from working in morgues uh, again by uh, those people so you know well, uh, let me let, let me I ask did. you
2: this and you, you may not answer or you may answer you may not tell the truth yeah, sure. did uh Did you ever fall back in any old habits when you were working in the morgue post-prison?
0: Well, believe me or not, no, because uh, I found a a purpose uh, working there. And the purpose was uh, to be a link between the living and the dead. So I took my job very seriously, and nobody can uh, say uh, the contrary. I have, because since I have worked for 15 years, I have taught my job to younger people who were working there. And they all told me that uh, I I taught them a lot of things, a lot of things about respecting that job, Uh, working with that people. It was a very special job. You have to, uh, psychologically speaking, it's really demanding. And um, believe it or not, I was a model uh, worker. I could have been the employee of the, the decade. Uh, but of course, because of my past and because of uh, my other activities as a writer and as a painter, etc. Now they, they said that uh, they didn't want me any anywhere near their the hospitals.
2: Understandable so, in a way, you know. I kind yeah, of understand. You know, understandable.
0: Yeah, understandable. It's just that you know, uh, I don't specially have any other job skills or you know. so i know how to write i know how to paint this is what i'm what i'm doing right now and Mm -hmm. uh, i'm okay with that so
1: all
2: right well nico i appreciate it thank you for taking the time and uh thank you um, for having me of course and maybe we'll do it again sometime um yeah um, definitely good luck going forward and uh when the world opens up and i go back on tour maybe i'll see you in paris at some point
0: Excellent. Uh, I definitely would like, like to, to see you.
2: You guys can um, can go to Nico's site, uh, serialpleasures.com and you can also follow him on Instagram at NicoClo, which is C-L-A-U-X underscore official.
0: Um, exactly, underscore official. Sometimes my uh, my uh, social media are banned. it happens, but the only real, reliable source is serialpleasures.com if you want to check something out. But you yeah, are right. almost on Instagram,
2: yeah. Well, thank you, Nico. Um, uh, take thank care. You. And um, again, too. thank you. I appreciate the honesty and the openness. And, and it, it, it means a lot. And hopefully, it'll help some other people. So thank you very much. I hope so. Thank All you. Right. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. Take care. Well, there it was. Uh, Nico, thank you very much for taking the time to do that. Uh, really fascinating. Um, The honesty is, you know, it's commendable, whether you like, whether you respect what he did or not, which obviously you don't, but you have to appreciate his openness and willingness to explain where he was coming from. So thank you, Nico. Uh, If you guys want a bun dildo, or if you ever wanted to have something like the the Night Stalker inserted into your asshole or vagina, you can obviously go to serialpleasures.com and and hook it up. Uh, other than that, that's it for now. Uh, got a good guest coming up for next week and some cool stuff planned in coming weeks. Follow us on all the social medias at Rareform Radio. You can follow me at DanCleary79. Um, that's it, I guess. Love to you all. Uh, hope you guys have a safe week. Get vaccinated. Wear your masks, get back to normal. Oh, I have work coming up. I have actual tour work with Jane's Addiction happening in uh, in September, which is crazy. Really, really crazy to to think about going back onto an airplane. I've been on a plane in like 13, 13 months, almost 14 months, which since I was 10, I, I probably can't say that. Absolutely crazy to have gone over a year. But looking forward to seeing the Jane's Addiction family again on the east coast maybe more i don't know i'm just saying uh and hopefully we'll see some of you guys out there if it's if it's safe enough and you guys feel comfortable so get your tickets go to janesaddiction.com i think that's a website and they're playing a, a festival maybe more I don't know. Uh, check it out and we will see you guys next week thank you very much for the support thanks for listening, and again. Thank you, Nico, very much for the open and honest conversation about all things darkness. Until next week, goodbye. Hit the wrong button. (laughs) Ha ha, yes. Hit the wrong button. Uh, Let's try it again. Wrong button again. And to send it out, here's the outro that we do every week because I'm a fucking idiot. See you next week for episode 96.
1: This is Lola, and I'm here to tell the world to stop being such pussies and listen to Rare Forum Radio.